This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Maureen McGrath hosting this program. Uh, We are talking about the time of day study. Um, and I am joined on the line, which is time of day study, in case you're wondering about that. It's a, what, it's a long study uh, that actually has been done over 10 years, and it is a study of more than it's thousands of, um, in the past, thousands of people have participated in studies like this. But the time of day study in Vancouver, British Columbia, is a study that follows 126 recreational and competitive athletes for 10 years. I'm interested in this because I'm a bit of both, recreational and competitive, but I just compete against myself. (laughs) Anyway, because nobody would compete against me because they would win. I wouldn't compete against anybody else. Um, I don't have a competitive bone in my body. That's the other thing. But we're looking, this study is looking to determine the safest time of day to exercise based on the presence of arrhythmia or irregular heartbeats during exercise. And joining me on the line, is Dr. Saul Isero, a cardiologist and founder of Sports Cardiology BC, who's involved in running this study. Hello, Dr. Isero. Hi, Maureen. Thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. So tell me um, what uh, the importance of the study, especially on daylight savings time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Maureen, uh, there's no doubt that exercise is good for one. That, that there's no question about. Uh, we, all, we do know, though, that there are certain times of the day where people are more likely to have heart attacks. And more heart attacks, for whatever reason, occur in the early hours of the morning. And what we are trying to do is to study whether or not exercise in the early hours of the morning is as safe and efficacious as exercise is in the afternoons. So, so many people will say, and myself included, although lately I've taken to swimming at nine o'clock at night because nobody else is there (laughs) um, and I can get a lane by myself, but so many people say, I'm going to exercise in the morning to get it over with. Is your study demonstrating that that is the best time, especially given the increased risk of heart attack? Well, we, we want to study that, Maureen. We, the, the truth of the matter is most of us feel that if you're going to exercise, exercise at any time, that's good for you and you'll be better off than not exercising at all. Uh, but this study is just to see whether or not an individual is more likely to have arrhythmias if they exercise in the morning uh, or more likely to have arrhythmias if they exercise in the afternoon. Uh, but we don't know the answer yet. Oh, okay. And so how about people who have atrial fibrillation, for example? Yeah, different stories. So atrial fibrillation is, um, as I'm sure your listeners know, is, is, a, is a benign arrhythmia in and of itself. The arrhythmia itself has never killed anyone. The concern about atrial fibrillation is the propensity to have a clot and a stroke. Right. Um, but w- with that, we don't know that there's any difference between exercising in the morning or the afternoon as causing atrial fibrillation. There's no data about that. Okay, so now you're in the final phase of recruiting for this study that has followed 126 recreational and competitive athletes for 10 years. How competitive did they have to be to be enrolled in your study? (laughs) Yeah, you don't have to be really very competitive. You know, we're still trying to define what an athlete is, and we've actually uh, just done that in a a, a research paper. But I, I think it was a judge who once said about pornography they don't know what it is you you can't define it but you know what it is when you see it it's sort of like a same thing with an athlete you know all of us know who an athlete is but if a person exercises more than 30 minutes uh, a, a day three more than three days a week we consider them uh, to be athletes 30 minutes a day more than three times a week yeah so they yeah. they're an athlete would they be considered well, a recreational athlete or a competitive athlete 
they, they would be a recreational athlete. Okay. And I suppose it's just the intention of why you exercise, which makes, which is the difference between competitive and, and recreational. Right. And so I suppose the competitive ones are the ones who are entering um, marathons and running marathons and entering uh, Iron Absolutely. Man, Iron, Iron Woman. Absolutely. <laughs> Competitive in individual sports or in team sports. Yes. Okay. And so what do you think the benefits of this study will be um, once you determine um, the, some well, of the outcomes? Well, I, I don't think we're going to find that much. You know, our, our hypothesis is that it's no, no worse to exercise in the morning than in the evening. And uh, we expect to find no difference. So the, what we think will happen is we'll follow these individuals for 10 years, and at the end of the day, we'll be able to say, it doesn't matter when you exercise, just exercise, because it's better to exercise than not exercise. Um, but, but we're going to study the safety of that. And so the, the reason for people um, having more cardiac events in the morning, that has to do with their circadian rhythms. Is that correct? Yeah, we think so. We think so, Maureen. Circadian rhythm is is the, the hormonal and, and other sort of uh, body fluctuations that occur throughout the day. And there's some evidence that in the early hours of the morning, adrenaline levels are higher and cortisol levels are higher and the, uh, the blood maybe get a little bit more, more sticky, uh, the platelets get a bit more sticky. So, so that, that's the thought, is that uh, the early mornings is a particularly dangerous time for people at risk of having heart attacks. Right. It's interesting because, you know, you'd think like, you, you know, you're too tired at the end of the day um, to exercise. A lot of people would be. And so they, you know, after a good night's sleep, you think, you know, hit the treadmill, um, you know, I'll go for a run, I'll go to an, an aerobics class or the bar method and, you know, all will be good. But if you're at risk, you might wait a little bit. And when you say early morning hours, what, what time are you thinking? Yeah, yeah, here's the catch, you know. The early morning is, uh, in, well, the, the studies are different. One of the studies was between 7 and 9. Okay. And the other study, there were more heart attacks between 7 and 12. So, um, Maureen, I think that the, the truth of the matter is that exercise is good for you, probably no matter when you do it. Uh, certainly better than, than not exercising at all, but... Uh, this is just to try to refine that, that a little bit. Right, and, and also put people's minds at ease. Well, it's excellent research, Dr. Isero, and I'm so glad you're joining me. And, and I want to thank you for your philanthropic work as well that you have done in the name of this as well. Uh, thanks very much, Maureen. My pleasure. Trying to pay it forward. Yes, and how can people uh, get, a, get in touch with um, your organization? Um, sportscardiologybc.org, all one, um, one word. SportsCardiologyBC.org, and they can they can look it up. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. I forgot to say, if you have any questions at all that you have for me or any of my guests, the number to call is one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. That's one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. That is a toll free call across Canada. You can always email me nurse talk at hotmail dot com. I've got a few emails. I'll read them a little bit later. A lot of people are wanting to know how they can be successful. What is the best way? And also balance. Balance this with happiness in life. Well, my next guest has joined me in the studio. He is the author of the book, uh, The Path of the Pure Creature. He is Craig Farlinger, and he's here in studio with me to talk about torquers and how that relates to happiness and success. Thanks so much for joining me, Craig. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, You're welcome. 
Yeah, great book, I have to say. Very interesting, very um, poignant, and um, perfect timing, I have to say, in, in my life and in my career at the moment. So, Well, it's it been out great. a while and selling steadily. Nice, so, nice. Um, and we have a book to give away to one of our listeners. So if you want to give us a call, the third caller will win. Lines are open. Third caller, one 9898 You might want to hear what it's about first. So, um, so tell me, what is a torker? Well, you know, torquing is living life to the fullest in your own unique way. Uh, it's We called it force at an angle to convention. And that angle being determined by who you were uh, the day you were born. We call that your pure creature. So um, it, all those natural genetic inclinations that give us our common humanity and our unique differences, uh, it's all about uh, going with those things. And sometimes life changes depending on our experiences as children, correct? Whether somebody has been through trauma or loss or um, what the messages that they have received, the negative messages. I was uh, listening to Arlene Dickinson yesterday out in Langley, British Columbia, where she talked about how um, you know she'd received negative messages about, um, you know, from, um, you know, people along the way uh, as a child. And also Mary Zilba was there and she talked about how she had won um, a, a contest and a talent contest. And her father said, if you sing that song at your at Miss America, you're, you know, I'm not going to go. And so you get these negative messages and that affects us, doesn't it? Well, yeah, that's all part of experiential learning. And there's also ideologies you can learn that uh, will incline people to suppress their natural inclinations or even ignore them. Mm -hmm. Um, And those can lead to health issues. Right. Because we're afraid to be unconventional, aren't we? Like, after reading this book, I'm a torker. I'm unconventional. You know, I'm I'm myself. I have to say, I am me. I can't fake being somebody else. Um, You know, what you see is what you get. And not, you know, not not everybody is going to like me. And I that took me a long time to actually realize that, but I, it, it was impeding me at a time when I was trying to please everybody. I'm a natural people pleaser. I'm happy. I want to do for others. I'm a giver. That's my natural way. But, but as you say, you, uh, you know, I was maybe listening to some people or people think they can say whatever they want to me. And, and that was affecting me. Um, you know, so you just have to be who you are. Well, it's more than that, actually. As the inventor of Torquing says, uh, who you are just keeps wanting to come out. You don't really have a choice. You're either going to go with who you are or you're going to have problems in life. And, and you also talk about your learning from your experiences, which a mm-hmm. lot of people don't do. They are too embarrassed. They get immediately shamed. They are, oh my gosh, I've made a mistake. I'm a perfect human being and I've made a mistake. And so therefore I have to react. And, you know, it, it, it impedes success, doesn't it? Well, yeah. You know, as uh, one of our friends, Torking Paul says, um, if an opportunity presents itself, take it. You're going to be dead a long time. And that's exactly right. You know, uh, this week I've offered a couple of things to, to women, opportunities to women, um, you know, a couple to be on the show, something else was working on a project. All three of the women turned those opportunities over to men. They said, no, maybe you would want, you know, George and John to do this. And, and another woman said, maybe you'd want the head of the company instead of me. I said to all of them, why are you turning down this opportunity? I actually want you. I don't really want them. You know, maybe I want them for something else, but not for, you know, not for this. And so... Arlene Dickinson also talked about not turning down opportunities because sometimes we think we're not qualified. Mm-hmm. 
But and torquers are qualified, aren't they? They are. <laughs> and you and Andrew are definitely torquers. It's nice to be here. So Great. You know, um, Not everyone likes torquers either, though, do they? <laughs> well, you know, uh, natural inclinations get maligned for some reason that I'll never understand. Um, I mean, we have things like love and friendliness and laughter and uh, closeness and sex and, and learning, the ability to learn, all those things come from nature. And joking around or fooling around, you know, making yeah. light of a situation, which, you know, is sometimes like a lot of the subjects that I discuss are taboo or they're very sensitive or they're boring, you know, quite frankly. And, and so you have to inject a little humor, a little levity into it. And some people might get offended by that and take it really personally and and then lash out and and it doesn't do much for them you know and we have to be compassionate i think in understanding those people well people live for their natural inclinations they really do right um it's i know philosophically people and intellectually they kind of have reservations mm-hmm. about that viewpoint but in my book i delve into all the deep philosophical scientific and intellectual issues and work it out that Torquing is actually a good philosophy of life, and it will lead to personal fulfillment and, and happiness. And, and one of those things is, I've, my sense from reading the book was that you have to know thyself and look at yourself and learn from mistakes that you've made. And, and you know, I, I said to somebody today, I was having coffee with a friend, and I said, you know, moveon.com. And she said, what? And she started laughing. She said, I love that. And, you know, it's because when you're, you know, in with negative people um, or people who are maligning you or people who, you know, just don't serve you, um, it's time to move on, you know, well, to, to serve yourself. You know, I, I know there's a saying out there, think globally, act locally. I would say think humanity and act human and just focus on that. And if you've lost it a little bit and you find yourself uh, censoring your natural inclinations, just remind yourself of that and and, uh, try and go with some of those uh, feelings because they're pretty nice, you know. That's right. And so why do some people lose that natural inclination? What are some of the, you know, stories? Why did you choose some of the stories that you chose? And this is a series of stories, this book, by the way, um, of situations. Well, I've been lucky in life. I, I guess uh, we basically uh, completely lost faith in authority figures at a very young age. So we start, we invented torquing when we were about mm-hmm. 12 years old. Mm-hmm. And, um, our friends liked it, adopted it, and uh, everybody's pretty successful and pretty happy to this day. Um, I got together with some friends yesterday, and uh, one just sold a multinational engineering firm he had created. Mm-hmm. The other one's an emergency physician, and uh, he's basically retired now and, and just enjoying life. And But it's not about money necessarily, the happiness factor that you talk about in your book, and I, in, in terms of yeah. success. For me, success, I define it as peace of mind. But I have Catherine from Surrey on the line. Hello, Catherine. Oh, hi, Maureen. Um, I don't, this isn't the topic you're talking about, but oh. it could go into it. Okay. Uh, I, I've drank a lot of water over the years, like we all have, but I'm an excessive drinker. And I did the reverse osmosis water, which made me low in magnesium. Mm-hmm. So um, I could never exercise without being out of breath. So rush hour really nailed me. So my doctor said, don't exercise during rush hour. And he told me to go on magnesium capsules, about 1,000 milligrams a day. Mm-hmm. 
and start drinking water that's not reverse osmosis. Um, they use magnesium when they do the heart operations by liquid. That's right. For, yeah, so I thought I'd let you know because I did not know that had made me deficient. Well, yes, and you know, deficiency in magnesium can cause fatigue and muscle cramps and, and mental problems, so clarity and cognitive function, and also an irregular heartbeat and osteoporosis. So it sounds like after talking to Dr. Saul Isro, our previous guest, you made a wise decision um, not to exercise during that time and, and change the way you consumed water. Thanks so much for your call, Catherine. Appreciate Thank that. Thanks for listening. So we're back to Craig, and so we're talking about success. And I had a lovely, lovely patient. I had a tough week last week. <laughs> and uh, a patient reached out, and he said, uh, you know, I just want you to know that um, I have, I'm very grateful for the work, you know, we did last year and how you helped me. And he said, I'm more consistently living with peace of mind. So that's really my definition of success is peace of mind. I really don't care about, honestly, I don't care about the money. I don't care about how much I'm passionate about what I do. I am happy. I have, you know, phenomenal family and friends. And, you know, I have a lot of fun in my life. Obviously, the nature of the subject of this show, the underlying one, you know, uh, (laughs) is a blast. I have to say, I thoroughly enjoy it. I totally forget to send invoices. So, but for a lot of people, they define success as money, you know. And I don't know what the stats are or what it looks like if if men are more interested in that. I, I had a woman say recently, she said something about making money and she's like, oh, I didn't mean it. She said, I want to make some money. And then she goes, I don't mean that. I don't mean that. And I'm like, it's okay to say that. You know, women are afraid to say that. I don't sometimes really do a lot for uh, trying to make a lot of money mm-hmm. and status and things like that. And I always liked Warren Buffett's answer to that question about what is success. And torquing, you can define success however you like and use torquing. But he said, if you have a lot of people around you who love you, you feel pretty successful, you know, and I like that one, and I have a lot of people around me that that I love, and I think right. love me back. And yeah, and, a lot uh, of people with a, nice a lot of money though have people around them that quote unquote love them. I mean, look <laughs> at the debacle with Michael Jackson, you know, with that documentary, and you know, sometimes people are attracted to people. You know, people have said, "Why didn't anyone tell us?" I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there were the red flags were there. Come on, but it was because a lot of people like to be around famous people, you know, people with power, people with money. They somehow think that's going to rub off on them or that they're more important or whatever. Um, but this, you know, how do people apply this twerking into business life, into their, you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs in Canada. And so how could they apply this being themselves? And, and so many people have a hard time being themselves. Well, I- I'm not, I don't change and become somebody different when I'm on the phone uh, mm-hmm. doing business. But mm-hmm. I do know people who do, and I wouldn't want to do business that way. I, I wouldn't enjoy it. Um, I enjoy meeting people, talking to them, and, and doing it as myself and, mm-hmm. and creating relationships mm-hmm. and, and delivering value and, and all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. um, it, the reason that we adopted it is uh, because it's, uh, it, it's sort of anti-being conventional. Um, and so we became entrepreneurs and, and we studied science and we got into technology and, and, and that was a way for us to be unconventional. Right, exactly. And the book is The Path of the Pure Creature. It's on Amazon.com. The author is uh, William Liberty, but uh, it's actually Craig Furlinger who has joined me in the studio. So thank you so much, uh, Craig, for talking about this and introdu- introducing this because I think it's an important book for anybody in, that wants to succeed in business and in life and in 
romantic relationships perhaps as well. You've heard of birth doulas. And in fact, I worked at a hospital where they introduced the birth doula. But what about the end of life? Taryn Estes is the founder of the Conscious Dying Institute. She's an end-of-life educator, organizational learning consultant, Caritas Coates, and an associate faculty with Dr. Jean Watson's The Watson Caring Science Institute. She has designed and facilitates Sacred Passage, which is education for end-of-life doulas, and that is becoming more and more popular. Typically, it means service of women, but typically now men are joining that organization. Hello, Taryn. Hi, thanks, Maureen. Thanks Good for, evening. Good evening. Finally, we connect. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for joining me. So this yes. is incredibly important work that you do. It's a subject we don't discuss. It's one of those taboo subjects that people are uncomfortable with, much like some of the other subjects that I discuss. And it's a very important time of life, though. So tell me what an end-of-life doula is. Um, and Maureen, an end-of-life doula is a human being, male or female, uh, who really is in service to the family and a person whose life is coming to an end. Sometimes a doula will come in and serve the family um, three months to, you know, the last three days of life. And a doula really helps the family and, and the person who's dying focus on what's most important so that there's more opportunity for love and caring and healing um, before life ends. So the, the, the doula is similar to a birth doula in that they are supportive to medical care and uh, certainly don't take the place of hospice or palliative care, but really are people who fill in the gaps so the family can have um, the capacity to focus on the the person, their loved one who's dying, they can have someone available to support them to understand how to be with challenging and really difficult and um, situations that, like you said in the beginning, most of us really don't talk about death anymore. So it's become more and more unfamiliar to most people um, about what, how, how we actually just with the process of dying, which is not one of, you know, for most people, it, it's terrifying and scary. And a lot of us have never really seen people go through the dying pre- process. What we have seen more of is that we have medical care and attention that or call on medical care and attention during periods of time when we're actually nearing death and it prevents us from from the humanity and our culture from actually understanding how to stay with people when they're dying. So a doula is someone whose uh, presence is comforting for the family and supports them to to have the kind of dying experience or living through dying that they really want. And so how does a, uh, an end-of-life doula differ from a caregiver? Um, I, I imagine the end-of-life doula goes into the home, much like the caregiver would, 
So, and, and I do also imagine that it allows the family to be a family when there's an end of life doula there. So I know that's a lot um, that I've loaded on you, but um, how, how, what is the difference? Um, well, the difference is that, that an end of life doula is a caregiver. And I mean, that there's, there's a very deep similarity there. We're all really caring and giving people and an end of life doula is someone who's, uh, really whose training is dedicated and intentionally, intentionally focused to understand the dying process in a right. very holistic way. Right. Um, this, this time of life, the end of life for people, we fear it, um, we're, we're upset, um, we don't understand, we may not think it should be happening, we may feel that we got ripped off, um, somebody may feel that their loved one should not have died, this should not have happened. Uh, an end-of-life doula, you believe, can shift the end-of-life experience from the worst months of life to the best months or, or days of life. How is that? Well, when when we have more time, when a doula is present with the family, um, prior to the you know the the last prior to imminent dying, it gives the person who's dying in the family an opportunity to talk about what's really important and to focus on those things, so that. You know, even though the time that's left may be brief or the condition that the person's dying with may be dire and, and, and very challenging and painful, there's an opportunity for love and care and healing to increase because there's someone, the doula, is present to actually right. focus the family and bring the family together that's, in a way that... That's wonderful. I, I hate to cut you off because I want to make sure yeah, um, Taryn okay. Estes, Conscious Living, ConsciousDyingInstitute.com. Thank you so much for joining me. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you this week. One of our all-time favorites, Alex Trebek, if you are a Jeopardy fan in any way. Um, you were saddened to hear his news that he has stage four pancreatic cancer. I had a very good friend die um, from that same disease. And interestingly enough, I hadn't seen him for about two or three years. And then he called me, um, you know, we got together and, you know, had a coffee. And then I remember thinking, wow, it's only been like two or three years, but you know, he's not aging well. That's what I thought. He was 45 years old and he looked about 55 years old. He looked 10 years older. And, um, he uh, died shortly thereafter and, um, you know, still still miss him today. He was a great guy and, it, you know, he'd been through a lot in life. But you wonder how does um, somebody know they have pancreatic cancer and especially stage four, you know, it has a very um, low health outcome. Um, you know, this, the um, chances are, but Alec Trebek has a three-year contract and we're also going to be optimistic uh, that he fulfills that. And there certainly have been some people who have survived it, but the survival rates are not very high. So um, what are some of the signs of pancreatic cancer? Well, one is a change in taste that you might not think about. It's one of the strangest symptoms of pancreatic cancer, and it especially affects the taste of alcoholic beverages and smoking. So people with pancreatic smoke 
pancreatic cancer who have smoked for 20 years can sometimes no longer stand to be in the same room with other individuals who are smoking, much less take a puff of a cigarette. And the change in taste of food can also happen as well. And this symptom continues to mystify um, researchers. Um, Weight loss is another symptom of pancreatic cancer. Older people are at higher risk um, keeping that in mind as well. Um, so if you uh, have uh, lost a fair bit of weight, um, fatigue is, an, is another sign. An enlarged gallbladder is another sign of pancreatic cancer. It can be. Itchy skin can be an early warning sign of pancreatic cancer regardless of the severity. It's because of chemicals released by the bile that builds up from the pancreatic cancer, which causes the itching, and it can be severe. Keep in mind, there's many reasons for itchy skin, so it's not necessarily, but in people with pancreatic cancer, tumors grow in the pancreas and any size of the growth can cause a blockage in the head of the pancreas. You might have yellow skin, otherwise known as jaundice in the medical world. Diabetes is also um, a precursor to um, pancreatic cancer and, and you see it in people who've had it maybe three years prior to the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. As I mentioned, weight loss for no reason. Um, when your body doesn't have enough pancreatic enzymes, it may allow fat to pass out through the body as waste without being properly digested first. And that is what explains the unidentified weight loss that many people with pancreatic cancer experience. And my friend certainly experienced that. That was part of it. You may also have some changes in your bowel movements. And because sometimes pancreatic cancer prevents enzymes used for digesting from reaching the intestines because of those tumor blockages as well. And so those are some of the early symptoms of pancreatic cancer. So if you have any changes in your bodily functions, um, you know, it's a good idea to Early diagnosis is key. A lot of people are afraid. They're afraid to go to their doctor. They don't want to have testing done, whether it be for breast cancer or cervical cancer because they're afraid of the of the diagnosis. So um, it's important that uh, you... S- talk to your doctor about any symptoms that you might be experiencing. And, and you know, they may be nothing. They may be just um, a reason... Um, you know, some other reason, an allergy to something or to to just to uh, clothes washing show, soap or something like that. Anyway, I'm Maureen McGrath and you're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at CKNW.com, the Radio Player Canada app. Tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.